17 through 4.1. Colossians 3.17 through 4.1. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Thank you, Bill. Silence. Many of us, when we get up on Sunday morning, it seems like the devil is working overtime in our lives, and um, that may be the case. And as we come to church, <clears throat> we may be preoccupied with a thousand and one things that need to be done, should be done, have to be done, um, and other difficulties. And it really occurred to me coming down today that... <clears throat> As we come together, we come together to worship him, but we come together to hear his voice. And oftentimes, the distractions of life as they bombard us um, crowd out that voice. And we need some time just to be quiet before him. So we're going to start this morning and take a few minutes where you can just take some time and go before the Lord before you hear this message that he's brought, bringing to us today. Spend a little time with him and ask him to just clear your heart and your mind that you might hear his voice in the next few minutes. Let's pray. Everything's backwards. So hang on because the wand is over here. 
There we go. <clears throat> and uh, Derek, can you, because I cannot with my glasses see anybody out there because there you are. Could you dim these guys for me? That would be great. Well, we are um, wrapping up. Next week, we'll be wrapping up our study in Colossians. And um, I hope you have gotten some things out of this over the last uh, few weeks of the new year and part of last year. And um, last week, we need to recap because what Paul is giving us right now is because of all the things Christ has done for us by going to the cross, making us a new creation in him, calling us to be ambassadors for him, all these things <clears throat> that should motivate us in the first part of the book. Um, now he's sharing with us how we should look to the world. And it's really important in our day and age, as it has been down through the centuries, that when people look at we the believers, they should see a difference not conformed with this world, but being transformed to the image of Christ. And they should see that in our lives. And so Paul is painting a picture for us of what that should look like in these verses in chapter, in the chapter two and chapter three and beginning to chapter four. And let me make sure this is on. <clears throat> um, so last week, we talked about what a well-dressed Christian should wear or what it should look like. And recap just quickly to set the stage for that, I showed some slides of this is New York City in the 1950s. And the point I was making here is there was a standard in America when I was growing up of what proper behavior was all about. The way you dressed, the way you conducted your lives, um, there was a universal standard and it, it was reflected in our attire. When we went out, we dressed up. You know, my mom never went to town, certainly in, in spandex, you know. <laughs> she, she looked like this, you know, when she went to town. And um, <clears throat> the point being that there was a cultural morality, and it was based on a Judeo-Christian ethics. And since that time, and I showed this slide next, uh, New, that was New York City in 1950. This is New York City today. And the change in dress, what it reflects now, is everybody's doing their own thing. And that is the cultural norm now. We live in a narcissistic society, don't we? To the point that they're teaching in school that homosexuality and other strange things are okay in the name of tolerance. You know, tolerance is the, the thing we want to be now. So you do your thing, I'll do my thing. Whatever works for you is good. Let us all be tolerant of one another. The craziness of this narcissistic society is that now I can decide when I get up in the morning if I want to be a male or a female. When I was growing up, if you were denying reality, that was lunacy. Okay, and now it's okay. That's where we're transitioning to in our society. That is why, you know, when Paul shares with us how important it is that we live out our lives, <clears throat> that the world should see a difference and it's because of Jesus Christ, that we be not conformed to the world but being transformed 
the reason for that as back in the day of the judges, in those days and in these, there was no king in Israel and everyone did basically as they wanted to. And there is no cultural norm anymore in America. There is no cultural norm really in the world anymore. It is truly everybody just doing their own things. And what it looks like is this, as Paul points out in 5 through 9, chapter 3, if you take Christ out of the picture and if you take basically who man is, the underlying person will reflect these characteristics in some form or another. Immorality, impurity, passion, and we're seeing that, are we not, all over. If you're on the internet at all, you can't even get away from it just because of the ads that pop up when you're trying to find something. The immorality in our culture and the passion, the evil desires, greed, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, it's just prevalent everywhere. I was coming up from Red Bluff the other day, and I was coming through, um, where was I? Down by Anderson someplace, and a car passed me going like 70 70 miles an hour, and he went into the um, right turn lane to pass me through an intersection on a red light. And I'm thinking, what are they thinking? But it's, if you get into the mindset that it is all about me, then nothing else matters. Law doesn't matter. Somehow I'm above that. Morality doesn't matter. There is no morality anymore except what I want to do. And the evil desires that come out of the basic nature of mankind in our sinful flesh manifest itself. And we, if we're honest with one another, just see it everywhere in our culture around us. All you have to do is walk downtown. All you have to do is walk out into the country when, you know, a month ago our home was broken into. We'd never locked up the ranch in our lives. And now we are because Joy and I were both gone for about three hours. A couple of thieves broke into our shop, our house, and our office. Fortunately, on that particular day, it was snowing. Joy came home early and, and spooked him, and we didn't lose much. <clears throat> we... um. As we were looking at this last week, we took a look at this slide, which I alluded to later, that these cultures and these passions that we have, whether it be on the agricultural rodeo side of things or on the biker's side of things, can come into conflict. And I shared with you that Joy and I had been at a rodeo down Oakdale when there was a brawl between the cowboys and the Hells Angels. And we got out of it, fortunately, and... um, But this conflict that's going on in our society right now is manifesting itself in violence over and over and over again. But when we come to Christ, Paul is sharing with us that there is a change in who we are. A fundamental, if we've really come to Christ and we're not just playing church by going to church, but we really have become the church, the living body of Christ, there is a change in who we are. And he shares with us what that looks like, as we looked at last week. Prejudice is gone. There's compassion for one another. There's kindness toward one another. There's a spirit of humility rather than pridefulness that takes over our character. 
that manifests itself in a gentleness toward others and a gentleness toward things, a gentleness toward animals, a gentleness toward life. It manifests itself in a patience. And part of the reason for all this is because all of a sudden the self is no longer on the throne. It does not have to be my way. It can be somebody else's way. And I can be patient with that and work with that. And it goes up further into having compassion for bearing one another's burdens and coming alongside one another, and forgiving one another. You know, we are fallible people. We're going to say things and do things that hurt one another. That's going to manifest itself in our families. It's going to manifest itself in our church families. It's going to manifest itself as we go out and deal with the world. It's just there. But are we going to take offense at those things? Or we're going to say, no, I choose not to take offense. I'm going to trust God to work through this difficulty regardless of the circumstance. And I'm going to trust him that all things are working together for good, even though it may seem unjust, even though it may seem wrong, even though it may be hurtful. I'm going to trust him through that, that he truly is working all things together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purposes. That's not an easy thing to do because our flesh wants to get even or at least appear self-righteous or to stand my ground or something along those lines. And it takes faith to be able to do that. It takes faith in what God says is true, that truly whatever is going on in your life at this moment, God somehow is using that for good. And you not, may not understand it, you may not see it, but nevertheless, God's word says that it is true. And right there we're faced with a choice. Am I going to believe it or am I not? And that's the walk of faith. For God does cause all things to work together for the good. And that involves loving one another. Now, it's easy to love those that are lovable. It's harder to love those that are not so lovable. And, you know, when we're working up at camp, and oftentimes uh, we encourage our counselors up there to remember you're going to have a lot of young people that come to camp. And some of them are going to be really nice young people, and some of them you're just going to want to kill. And you should. Well, we don't say that part. But it's those people, it's those young people that need your compassion, your love the most. Because some reason they're acting out a deep hurt that's within. <clears throat> and when we were deep and hurt, God reached out to us through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us, didn't he? And so that makes a change. It's not something that we can drum up in of ourselves and say, I'm just going to act this way. We can't because our old nature, if we are truly not born again, our old nature is going to dominate who we are. <clears throat> this is a new nature. We are born again, as our Lord shared with Nicodemus. You've got to be born again, spiritually born again. And if you've never truly trusted Christ as your Savior, may I encourage you to do that? It'll radically change your life for the good. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new when you trust Christ as your personal Savior. And what it translates into is the cowboy that was once prideful, all of a sudden now he's got a heart for people. And it's more important for him to share the good news of the Savior than it is to have his own way. And same with the biker. Isn't that a great picture? You know, and for any of us, whatever our calling in life is, you can see the market change in somebody when the old has passed away and the the Lord has given them a heart of compassion for people. So that was last week as we were talking about personally what the Lord desires for our lives personally to look like. He switches gears a little bit in the verses that Bill read for us and now he's going to be talking about what we as a corporate family, what we should look like, okay? And before I start this, I want to reiterate something that I started with that's really important. Our culture and what those of us that grew up in the 50s has radically changed since those days. But our culture, American culture, is dying. And it's dying because people, we as a culture, have turned away from God. You know, we took prayer out of the classrooms back in the 1960s, I think it was. My dad, I shared with you last week, learned to read in school using the Bible. That was the text, the King James Version, that they learned to read with in school. That's all gone now. Okay, it's all gone. We've thrown God out. So it's ever more important in these last days that we live our lives in a manner that reflects the Savior. So Paul starts out here with five categories that we're going to look at. And we could spin a message on each single one of these, and obviously we don't have time, so this is just going to be like a quick taste of what they are. It starts off with wives, husbands, children, father, slaves, masters, and I would submit to us since we don't have slavery anymore that we can substitute their employees and employers for those because some of us work for others and some of us have others that work for us. So this is what he's going to look like, look at here. <clears throat> and he starts off with you gals. He says to you, wives, be subject to your husbands. Now, we're going to deal with husbands and wives both here together. Um, But I want to go take you back real quick because Paul explains this a little bit better and why he says this to you gals in Ephesians. So go back with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And it's the same concept he just expands on it a little bit. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, he says to us, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own body, but nourishes it and cherishes it, as Christ also does the church. So what we've got here is, well, let me throw this slide in here really first. You know, finding equality is one thing. Being dominant is something else, okay? Do any of you know which state was the first state to approve women's suffrage? Wyoming, yeah, Wyoming. Anybody know the year? You girls should know this. 1869, before Wyoming was even a state, as a territory, they allowed their women to vote. And I probably figure, well, what's the reason for that? It's probably because those pioneer women could shoot just as straight as the men could. <laughs> and they were scared of them. No. <laughs> anyway, we've moved from a concept. And now it's interesting. Look at that top slide. The white girls are saying votes for women. The black girl is saying equality for women. You notice that? It's a little difference there. She was looking for something a little bit deeper than just the right to vote. Anyway, I put together this little concept that we might really understand something here. <clears throat> if you look across, it's a higher calling because Christ's relationship to the church is modeled in the relationship between husbands and wives for the world to see. <clears throat> you wives, if you're not in submission to your husbands, in everything, then you're not modeling our relationship as the bride of Christ, the church, with our Savior. Because he is Lord of all, and we are to be obedient to him. Husbands, similarly, it's the same thing, that we are to model Christ's love for us by modeling our love for our wives. And that's why Paul is getting at in Colossians, but where he expands this thing right here, it's a, it's a direct model for the world to see. If we're not doing that, if you gals are conforming to the world and the way you're responding to your husbands, then the model breaks down. That's what it's saying. And men, the same goes for us too. If we are not modeling loving our wives in a sacrificial way and looking out for their interest, the model breaks down. Certainly in our culture, we have the war of sexes going on. Many of us have seen uh, an old movie, um, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I think it was the title or something like that. And there's a line in it when they're getting ready to get married, um, the mother and one of the aunts are talking, and the mom says, he may be the head, but we women are the neck. And the neck always turns the head. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's really true. That's really, really true. If, if we're really not careful about keeping the model straight. And you can, you can say to me, 
or to the Lord. Well, you don't know the man I'm married to. You're right. And we can also say, you men can say, you don't know the woman I'm married to, what she's like. But I don't see anything here in Ephesians or Colossians where there's an excuse. Now, I may have missed something, but I don't see anything there other than wives be subject to your husbands as fitting unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Now that raises, if we were had a whole week to do this, an interesting question. What would a wife do to embitter herself to her husband? I want to suggest one major thing, gals, to you. And that is this. <clears throat> you don't esteem him and let him know you esteem him for who he is, for what his calling is. There isn't a man alive <clears throat> that cannot face the world without his wife's support. But if she encourages him in who he is, he can take on anything, even if everybody else is against him, that she believes in him and lets him know. But if she keeps picking at his faults, okay, and we have them, good grief, we have hundreds of them. We're men. What do you expect? You know, you girls were the second versions, and the second versions of anything is always better than the first. It's really easy to by a word and a look, discourage your husbands. And if they're not careful, that can cause bitterness because they don't feel esteemed by the one that's most important to them. But it also says, husbands, your wives aren't perfect, that verse does. They're not gonna do it right all the time. So don't climb the mountain of bitterness. Don't become embittered. Love her for who she is. Accept her for who she is. She's not perfect either. She, after all, took the forbidden fruit. It's her fault, right? No, no, we're not going there. None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. We live with one another. We forgive one another. We encourage one another. We be there for one another. We uplift one another. Encourage one another to love and good deeds. And it should start right here in this relationship. Well, he's, he switches on to children. Children are to be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well and pleasing to the Lord. <laughs> well, we've all seen this kind of thing, right? <clears throat> and, and this is, don't you love it when you're, when you're in town and you see a little child acting out and the parent says, I told you this, I'm going to count to three. And the, right there, that you've already taught the child that one and two don't matter. Why say, I'm going to count to three? Why not just say, I told you, you do it in the question? Otherwise, you get this kind of thing going on. You know, I mean, that family's in for a world of hurt, especially when that youngster gets to be a teenager. And the training has to happen when they're young. 
the training has to happen when they're young. And I want to submit to you, there's two things a child must learn. Must learn these two things. The first is to be obedient. Because unless a child learns obedient, obedience, they cannot learn anything. Think about if you're trying to teach a child how to just something simple like bat a baseball. There's a right way and a thousand ways to do it wrong. But if a child is obedient and pays attention to instruction, he can learn to bat a ball. If he's disobedient, he will never learn it. It won't happen. And so one of the things we must do is teach him to obey the first time. Not when I count to three or four. And the trick is, is to find things that teach obedience because a spanking doesn't always work. Sometimes it's the taking away of something that's very precious. Anyway, that's a whole sermon for another time. The second is they must be a taskmaster. They must learn how to accomplish a task. <clears throat> we see it so many times when, you, when a parent will say something like, go make your bed. And the parent goes in after a while and the bed is kind of thrown together, but it's not made. And the parent gets upset. But the problem is the parent has never taught the child how to make the bed, how to accomplish the task. I witnessed something up at Mike and Annie's that was really interesting. They have a neighbor across the street has got about three kids. And <clears throat> the kids were told to rake the lawn before the dad got home. And so the kids are out there and they rake a little bit, kind of. And then they get in this big leaf fight. And then they kind of rake. And, and, and they're kind of moving leaves from this spot over to this spot. And then they play for a while. Then they move it from here over to here. And nothing's getting done. And I thought, I realized the problem is that either mom and dad had never taught them how to efficiently rake leaves. But not only that, had they not taught them, they not taught them to you stick with it until that task is done. Don't get distracted. Okay? Children by nature learn how to play. You don't have to teach any child how to play. You have to teach them how to work. And that takes discipline and it takes time. And I watched my dad train dogs. And I'll say more about that, well, right here, because it says train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. Well, there's a spiritual implication there that we want to have him have a relationship with the Lord and follow the Lord. But there's also the concept that you need to train, not just tell him, but train him how to do things in life. And I watched my dad with dogs, <clears throat> and it is the same with children. He would take a, 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 a little a Cocker Spaniel dog, and, and my dad won a number of cups and won national cup for his ability to train. And he'd work, 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 and the dog would just do just, he'd want him to get the dog to, to sit and to stay. And so he'd sit him down, he'd say stay, and the dog would move, and he'd put him back, stay. And he'd do that over and over and over until the he backed up just a little bit and the dog stayed just a little bit and then he just praised him like crazy. Just a simple, tiny little step. And the dog pretty quick realized, wow. Okay, and then he added just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more 
until dad could put a dog with a point. Dog would sit, dad would walk away, and he'd just go right to him. How do you get to that point? A little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. That's what training involves. Sometimes training takes a lifetime, a lifetime, but you've got to be patient and keep doing it. Whether you're a parent, a grandparent, a great-grandparent, train, 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 train. And you know what? Your training most often is by your personal example. You want your children to be involved in Bible studies? Take them with you to a Bible study. You want them to be involved in church? Get involved in church. See? By our, by our walk, we teach. <clears throat> But there's a warning here. Fathers, do not exasperate your children or they will lose heart. You can try to beat something in a child and what Paul is getting at, that's not going to work. And I would submit to you what I learned in growing up and watching my dad and the way he taught me and with those dogs and with me, a little instruction and a whole bunch of encouragement for a little bit of accomplishment. And you'll win that child's heart. And that child will become teachable because he's encouraged that he can do it. You know, there's a member in our family that really wanted to learn how to sew. Her mom would try to teach her how to sew. She'd make mistakes. Her mom would take it away from her and fix it herself. You know what that taught? that young girl, I can't sew. I can't sew. She want to learn how to cook. Get in there, make a mess. Didn't, no, you're not doing it right. Let me do it for you. What that teach that young girl? I can't cook. Okay. Kids are going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. It's part of the training process. A lot of encouragement. A lot of encouragement when we train. Is what wins a child's heart. It wins all of our hearts. Encourage one another to love and good deeds. Why does he say that? Because we all need encouragement in what we do. We put ourselves out there. We expose ourselves to the world, to one another. We try. We fail. We're not perfect. We don't need to remind one another we're not perfect. We already know that. We need to remind one another to keep trying. Hang in there. You'll get it. I was a terrible speller in school and still am, not good. And, you know, you'd, in those days we'd get these lists of spelling words, you know, and my mom in particular would work and work and work and work with me at that. I was a solid D student in spelling. I would get a C and my mom would think I had gone to the moon. She was so encouraging about that, just a C. Well, other people were getting A's. <clears throat> so we want to encourage one another so he moves on to slaves or employees and most of us work for somebody else you know I've had people say you're self-employed you're so lucky you don't have to work for somebody else what they don't realize is right now our business has seven different people we're trying to please, and they're all different, seven different projects we're working on. 
And every single one of those has deadlines. Every single one of those has different job tasks associated with it. Every single one of those has different people we're trying to please. So we all are working for somebody. But the point here is all things, those of you who are masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with a sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And, and see, this goes back to our calling, is what is going to make a difference in the world now is an employee that's just, at, just in this job for what he can get out of it, or an employee that's in this job for what he can give to the betterment of the whole business. What can I do to make you successful as my employer? It's a radical difference, but knowing that we're called to serve our master. And that's why in all things obey. See, it's that obedience thing. The obedience that, okay, it may not make sense, but that's what my employer wants me to do. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it to the very, very best of my ability. I'm not going to try to reorganize the job. I'm not going to try to do it in a way that I want to do it because that's better. I'm going to do it for him and the way he wants me to do it because maybe he knows something I don't know in the big picture of things. But that doesn't make it, that's not the real point. The real point is because God has called us to do that. And by doing that, we live out Jesus Christ in front of them. Okay, that's the reason we do it. <clears throat> do your work hardly as unto the Lord rather than for men. That's the bottom line in that whole concept. We're doing it for the Lord. Years ago, we did, a, as most of you know, we did a lot of spotted owl work, a lot of calling owls in the middle of the night uh, working for the different timber industries. And I, I would always tell all of our employee, employees and our sons and daughter work for us a lot, you got to remember, when we're out there at night, we're supposed to spend X amount of minutes at each call station and do it a certain way. There is nobody watching you, nobody, except the Lord. He knows every step that we're doing in the middle of the night. We do it for him. Okay. And consequently, God honored that with years and years of service in that particular area. And we were able to, our little business was able to put about oh, a number of young people through school because we kept getting work in that field. And I'm really thankful for that. But the concept, again, we do it for the Lord. Whether anybody else is looking or not, does not matter. So then masters or employers, grant to your employees justice, fairness, knowing that you too have a master who is in heaven. It's the ability to come alongside and work with them. You know, there's a model uh, of how employers should structure a company. Usually it's the CEO and then the board of directors and then the, the supervisors and then, and then the laborers down here. I think the reality is the Lord would have us reverse that model if you're an employer and put the employees at the top that everything else should filter up to helping them be successful because they're the producers. They're the ones that are making it happen. And everything everybody else does 
should support them and encourage them. And it goes back also, I think, to that concept of encouragement. Encourage one another, always. A little instruction, a lot of encouragement. A number of you know who Dick Winters is, uh, Lieutenant of Easy Company, uh, 506. Um, uh, the Screaming Eagles, paratroopers in Normandy, and then on through... He was quite a leader. He said one thing, he said, always lead from the front. You know, if you're a parent, you lead from the front by setting an example. If you're an employee, you lead from the front by setting an example. If you're an employer, you lead from the front. But he said this of, a, of the courage of a leader, strive to be a leader of character, competence, and courage. And I really like that concept. If we're going to lead, whether we're fathers in our home or mothers in our home or in the workforce, we should strive to have Christ's character, know what we're doing because we have God's word and the courage to do it. Years ago, James Dobson wrote a book that was really helpful for Joy and I. It was Dare to Discipline. Interesting title. Dare to discipline your children. You're not going to kill them. Discipline and save their souls. Okay? Strive to be leaders of character, competence, and courage. And I want to end here. <clears throat> because if, if I had to pick a verse that I think sums up what the book of Galatians is about, it's this. Whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're his ambassadors. I'm his ambassador. Giving thanks to him, through him, pardon me, to God the Father. Can you capture in your mind and in your heart the immensity of the royal high calling to be an ambassador for the God of the universe with your life. Do you get that deep down inside? That's what we're called to be. And we do that by how we live out our lives, what we put on in the way, in our own personal conduct and the way we interact with one another. So as we go forth this week, let us in every word and deed, do all for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, these words to us, these encouraging words to us from Paul, through Paul, from you, through him, to us. And Father, may we just, in our hearts and minds, may we just trust you with the difficulties we face. They're real, and you know that, <clears throat> and yet you have overcome the world. May we just have the peace that passes understanding because our faith is in you, knowing that all things together are working together for each one of us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.